Once again, if you have your Bibles with you, let's go to Luke chapter 13 this morning as the band leaves the stage. Luke chapter 13. I know some of you haters out there didn't think we'd be this far along in Luke, 10 weeks in, but just for my pride's sake, I am ensuring that we move along. I, uh, I was in a meeting with a few other pastors, and uh, some dude I just met, and uh, he, we were talking about what we were preaching through, and I said, uh, we were preaching through the book of Luke right now, and uh, I said, we are about nine weeks into it, and we are in chapter 13, and he says, my, that is a mighty good clip you are at there, and I thought, yeah, you have no idea. It is, for me, it is a big clip. Uh, we were moving at a very rapid pace. Sometimes I feel like I don't even do justice to the text. But um, nevertheless, I think uh, uh, we have kind of heeded, or I have heeded to um, the advice of, uh, of a preacher by the name of Mark Dever and Greg Gilbert. If you're familiar with those, Capitol Hill Baptist Church anyways. He wrote a book called Preach, and in that book he he talks about how um, we should fly at different altitudes above the text as preachers. Um, that we should sometimes go, you know, a couple verses at a time because there's so much detail and richness there. Um, but if we do that and that's all we do, uh, we'll miss the big picture. But if all we're doing is flying at the big picture level, then we'll miss the details of the text. And so we should fly at different heights above the text. And so <clears throat> the height at which we're flying right now is roughly a chapter a week. Uh, which is a little easier to do maybe than a Pauline letter, but um, uh, because of being a narrative and parables and such. But uh, we're flying through it about a chapter a couple weeks. We've done two chapters in a week, uh, which again just kind of pains my heart because there's so much there to talk about. And so with that said, I want to encourage you. The same thing I've been encouraging you now for a number of weeks is that there are so many implications of the text and applications of the text that we're just not able to get to uh, even though I will take up most of your Sunday afternoon here preaching. Um, but uh, there are so many implications and applications that you take what we, what we learn and you must work through it uh, during the week. Um, I do have to point out, some of you uh, may have noticed already, but my eyeglasses are broken. Uh, if you can see the line on the right side of my face, now it's going to bother you the rest of the time. Um, but just in case you noticed it, uh, I stepped on my glasses. Uh, trying. Yeah. Anyway, it's a long story. But I have like this permanent blurriness right here. Um, so if I start getting angry in the middle of my sermon, it's probably because I've got a headache from the blur of my eyeglasses. So pray for me if that starts happening. So anyways, uh, I want to, I, I was encouraged by something I heard a, a pastor say this past week as I was watching him. Some of you know who Dr. Platt is, uh, Dr. David Platt. And as he was getting ready to talk through on how to study the Bible, he reminded the people that were there for this this time, something very important, and I wanted to kind of echo that to us, and that is the fact that uh, we're not here, and, and my goal here over these next few moments is not to entertain, um, but it's to equip, um, and if your goal here this morning uh, is to just learn a little more about the Bible, then I think your goal is way too small. Um, kind of miss the point of the gospel. The gospel is not just so that we would learn a little more about the Bible or a little bit more about God, but so that we would take what we learn and reproduce that in someone else, that we would take that and spread that to our families, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, uh, and that we would be about reproduction as Christians. Um, and so I want to encourage you that, that and, and I want to pray the same thing that David prayed for their church, that uh, David Platt, that is not David uh, from the Bible, but he prayed that, uh, you know, that his church would be a people uh, that is not satisfied with just learning more biblical knowledge, but is satisfied only when we take that biblical knowledge that we've been blessed to, to be given by God and reproduce that in someone else as God and as Jesus has commanded us to do. So I want to encourage us as we're sitting here learning today. Remember, you're not learning just for your sake. You're learning for a sake that's much greater than you. Uh, we learn for the sake of the kingdom so we might glorify God in the redemption of more people as God reaches in 
and pulls their hearts out of darkness and into light. So I just want to remind us of that. All right, so now on with the sermon. I want you to think back to last Friday. Think back to last Friday. I want you to recount uh, just for a few moments um, what your prayer time looked like last Friday. What was your, if we were to take and, and write up a log of that, those times that you communicated with God, what would be the content of that prayer log? Um, now you're thinking, well, I didn't have my quiet time on Friday. I was a bad person. Uh, come on. Like, did you talk to God at any point in that day? Hopefully you did many, 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 many times. But, uh, and it didn't just look like, you know, you got your head bowed and your eyes closed. But, but communing with God all day long, how did you, what did you converse with God about? And then we have to ask the question, I want us to ask this question now that you have maybe a few things that you prayed about on Friday. We ask this question, is what you prayed about reflective of what God cares about? Is it reflective of what God cares about? Is what you prayed about what you want non-Christians around you to discover about God? Like is that, if you were to take your prayer log and what you prayed about and show that to an unbeliever, would, would that be how you would want to describe God and that which God cares about? Is that, how would you answer that question? You know, our culture says, well, but do, doesn't God care about everything? I mean, like, what doesn't He care about? Now, According to our culture's understanding of God, and particularly God's benevolence, we would say that He cares about everything. Doesn't, doesn't God care about everything? Well, again, what doesn't, he, what doesn't He care about? And I hope there's kind of a tension kind of growing in your heart right now, going, well, what does God care about in prayer? What doesn't God? I thought we were supposed to go to God with everything. And, 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 and I think what we need to do is I, I want to... I understand some of us are big picture people and some of us are little like detail people. And for you detail person, you're going, oh, but yeah, but God does care. And I take God, but I'm, I take everything. But I, I, want you to, I want you to step back. If you're not a big picture person, I want you to step back and, and, and kind of look at your prayer life and the things that concern you most. And ask the question, do the things that concern you most, does that line up with the things that concern God most? And the picture that he cares about most. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, now that we need to be careful about, what we need to be careful about is that which we say we care about, though, and that which we functionally live. Because, unfortunately, oftentimes we live as though we care, we say we care about something, but we live as though we don't care about that. And I just want to remind us before we get into the text here that Jesus and what he cared about was always lived out in the way uh in, in his daily life does that make sense so sometimes we say we care about something but we we don't really care about that because we don't functionally live as though we do care about that now we can say like for instance we can say we care about parenting but when we don't pray about parenting and we don't seek wisdom for it we don't really care about parenting we're going to seek what we need to we're going to pray about those things we can say that we don't care what someone else thinks, but when we find ourselves altering the truth to what this person thinks, you, you really do care what they think. So what I'm trying to paint the picture is that these two need to line up. And, what, and, and the point is that Christ always lived out what he said, what he believed. And we need to keep that in mind as we work through this. So we're going to talk about five things that Jesus cares about from Luke 13. Again, we're not going to get into all the implications or the applications um, of the text, but kind of as a quick overview working through Luke 13, the first thing we see that Jesus cares about is your future. Jesus cares about your future. And you're going, oh, awesome, good, because I was really hoping for that house and that one particular car and, and uh, you know, uh, Hold off on those thoughts for just a few moments. Let's go to Luke chapter 13, verse, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 9. He says, 
Well, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the tower and, and uh, Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for, three, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So, couple things to note here. There's two like death, like tragedies involving death that we see in this text. The one is the Galileans in the temple. And basically what happens is Pilate's men come in. They're in there worshiping. They're offering up sacrifices. And Pilate's men come in and kill the Galileans that are in here worshiping, literally spilling their blood and blood mixing with the blood of their sacrifice. This is a, a horrific thing that took place. Then you have the sudden collapse of a building where, again, multiple people die. Now, I want to talk for just a moment. We're talking about understanding the text. We have to understand how would this have been understood, these two tragedies. What would have been coming through the people's minds at this point as they're looking at and talking about these tragedies? Because I think part of our problem with understanding this text is that we don't view tragedy like this the same way that they would have viewed tragedy like this in this time. See, our culture today views everyone as basically good, right? I mean, you look around, everyone's viewed as basically good people. So when people die, well, it, it's, it, it's a terrible thing, but we assume that everything is going to be fine. Like, oh, you know, they're, they're going to be in heaven with Jesus. And, I mean, I'm talking about more our culture at broad. Of course, we would understand that differently as Christians, but but that's, that's our culture. We, but even that, though, even within the church, we struggle with that. We tend to think as everyone is basically good. And we, we, we do ourselves as well. Um, if you don't think you struggle with people being good, we're just talking about the doctrine of election. If we talk about the doctrine of election, then we start to really think, well, people... Well, no, because people are basically good, and that's why we tend to have such a problem with grasping that oftentimes. That's not the only reason, but oftentimes people have such a problem with that because we begin with the premise that we're basically good and everyone deserves salvation. But that's not the case. But during this time, but we, we again, we view everyone as basically good. So we say in our culture today that you know, no one deserves to die. No one deserves to die. I mean, today, this suddenness, the suddenness of this death, yes, would be a tragedy, but it would almost be a good thing because we would, we would say in a tragedy like this, well, at least they didn't suffer, right? At least their death was short and sweet. Well, maybe not sweet, but we would say at least it was short and not tragically painful. I mean, we are firmly fixed in this culture uh, on thinking that the only experience we have is that which we have in the body and nothing beyond. We, we think of this life, this is the body, this is it, and, and we don't go any further. Now, in their culture, though, what would be the differences? In their culture, they viewed everyone as basically evil. Like, they viewed people as having not this innocence that we say that people have. They assumed people's guilt. They assumed that nothing was going to be okay, and they would have been amazed at the fact that these people had made it this far, and that God or, or life had not taken their life yet. They knew, though, during this culture, that there was something beyond the body. 
I mean, this suddenness would have been terrible for them. But the question is, why would this suddenness have been terrible for them? It would have been terrible because the people didn't have time to prepare for their future. Or they had less time to prepare for that which was beyond the body. So their culture would have viewed this, I think, this text much, much differently, or this situation, rather, than we would have. This is the reason for the kind of horror that the people would have been experiencing at this moment. Like, oh my gosh. Not just because this life was cut short, but because, wow, these were guilty. This was horrific. Now listen to their comments. Luke 13, verse 2. He says, and, and he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, understand, you can see here coming from the people, their understanding in this culture of their guilt. And Jesus is addressing this. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because the assumption was, from the people, was that they had experienced this tragic death because of their sinful, and their, their sinful state and their guiltiness. And they began to think, just like those of Job's accusers, that, that they were somehow worse sinners than the rest of them. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is not the thinking that we need to have. And he rejects this way of thinking about these deaths. And he calls out those people who were thinking this about their death. He calls out their similar state of sinfulness. But then it's interesting, because what Jesus does, he, he goes beyond simply the reality of their physical death. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches that everyone dies physically because of Adam's sin, but Jesus doesn't just simply comment on these terrible incidences. Instead, he uses them to point to something greater than death, something beyond the grave, and he warns them to be prepared for that. And as Jesus goes through this, we, we move on now. He moves to the fig tree. We're going to tie these together in a second, but he moves on to the fig tree. So fruit trees during this time, and in this area, they would have they were, they, sorry, there were many fruit trees, particularly fig trees, in this time. So this, this would have been a very common picture. For you and I to think of a fig tree, we're like, huh? Not seen one of those. Like, we think of fig newtons, right? You know, fig newtons. Uh, but during this time, this would have been very clear. Like, for us to think of a maple tree, except one that bear, bore fruit would probably be a better example. Uh, we don't have much fruit bearing going on around here as far as trees are concerned. But, but this would have been common for them, and what they had during these during these vineyards, they have they would have caretakers who were hired uh, to take care of the vineyards. And it was interesting if you look at Old Testament history, the Israelites were often referred to as fruit trees. That, and Jesus, I think what's going on here is Jesus is basically uh, liking himself to the caretaker of the vineyard, and the vineyard being the Israelites. The Jesus as the caretaker in the vineyard. In the story, I want you to notice a couple things with that in mind in the story. First of all, notice the inevitability of judgment. Notice that the guy who comes to the vineyard and he's and he's he's concerned about should I tear this tree down? And he says, "Look, no, let's give it another year, and then we'll cut it down. Then it will no longer take up ground." to use the words of the text. So notice the inevitability of judgment. There is coming a day when the fruit will be judged, when the trees will be judged. The second thing I want you to notice is notice God's grace. Notice God's grace. He comes to him and he says what? Let it alone another year, and then we'll come dig it up. He gave them another year to get right. And we think, oh, the tragedy of dying suddenly. But in reality, it's amazing that God has given us this much time that He's given us so far. And God here is gracious in that He gives them another a year. And so notice the inevitability of judgment. The judgment will come. But notice that God's grace. And He prolongs that. And you know, just as a side note, we think of the fact that Christ has not come yet, and it's been 2,000 years. That is God's kindness 
to this world, to us, that more people might find redemption in Jesus Christ. He, he could have, I mean, 10 years after this, and we could have been done. The world gone. But God's kindness in prolonging His judgment in His coming and return of His Son. So I want to say, if you're not a Christian, Jesus cares about your future. Um, judgment is coming. Um, but He is kind to you right now in another day. In this story, He is warning you. God is real. He is powerful and all good. He's the one in charge of this vineyard. He, and Jesus is warning us here just prior to that of this repentance that must come about. And we all must repent. And God made you like Him as an unbeliever, even as one who doesn't follow Christ. He made you in His image. You have value because of being made in His image. But you, like all of us, have chosen to rebel against God, to go under your own rules. And the guilt that you experience when you do something wrong is there because God has made you in His image. And that guilt that sits there, I didn't, I should not have done this. That's just a witness to the character of God that He left in you. And the conscience is telling you the truth after your sin. There's something more here that I need to know. But the cool thing and the awesome thing in God's kindness is that that's not the whole story. God just doesn't, doesn't just leave you with that guilt. There is an opportunity in the gospel for that guilt to be removed through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and lives a perfect harmony with God. He, he had no penalty to pay for His death, so His death then is able to pay the penalty for those who would trust in Him. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you that this forgiveness for that guilt and that sin can be yours today if you trust in Jesus. This is the good news of Christianity. And so Jesus is saying this repentance that He is talking about, of course, is is foreshadowing the, uh, the coming payment of that repentance, or that payment of that sin, enabling that repentance um, that we'll see later on in the book of Luke. <clears throat> but notice, notice something here. Notice that he doesn't tell us what happens to the tree. You notice that? There's no end to that. He goes on to next with the woman with the disabling spirit. There is no conclusion to what happens to that tree. I think Jesus does this deliberately. He is leaving the story open for you and me. He's leaving the story open that there's, there's time. Like we are in that time, but we're not guaranteed the next moment. But we're still in that time. And I would encourage you to not expect God's patience to last forever. It will run out. It will run out eventually. We're being called to repentance this very day. Now, as Christians, let's think about this. We think of oftentimes as repentance as Christians as just that moment that we repent in order to be saved. And then we again, we miss the point of the gospel. The gospel is that we would be led into continual repentance. That we would not just repent that day, but we would continue to repent as the gospel brings about transformation in our lives. Now, we're not continuing to repent for justification's sake. We're repenting for sanctification's sake. We're already justified and all of our sins paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ and made right before God. But working that salvation out, and we know that that is guaranteed by the work of the Holy Spirit, but it requires continual repentance, therefore continual need for the gospel. But I want to encourage us that the future of the church is secure and Jesus is the caretaker of the vineyard and those bearing fruit will be tended to by the master caretaker. Like he will continue to care for his church. Now I don't know, like I just I want to encourage you, Renovation Church, that um, I don't know what the future holds for us as a body. But I know that those of us who are followers of Christ as a part of the universal church, that our future is secure. Now Renovation Church have may a role, may have a role in this for the future, for, for 50 years, for 100 years, for 300 years. Who knows? But ultimately what matters is that Christ's universal church will 
succeed, will continue. And Jesus as our vineyard and our caretaker, this is guaranteed. So, Jesus cares about your future. And when we think about our future now, if we're talking about prayer, when we think about our future, are we praying just to have a house on a on a on a the side of a hill with acreage and a farm or or to have this nice house in the middle of a suburb or are we praying that God would continue to secure the future of our salvation and he would continue to grant us repentance day in day out day in and day out as as we realize the sin in our lives and the depth of our depravity is is that the concern of our prayers because God, or Jesus here, is clearly concerned about the future of those who are listening to him at this point. He's giving them warning. And so, not that it's wrong. I don't think that's wrong for us to, to pray, God, for, for a particular place to live or, or for uh, uh, pro- providing for our needs. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that all we pray about? Or do we pray about that which is God's concern? And Jesus here is concerned for the future of those who are listening. Now, are we concerned then? So, when we pray, are we concerned about our future? And then, are we concerned about the futures of those who are listening to us? Those who listen to the way we speak, those who listen to the way we act, are we concerned about their future? Do we pray about the future of our kids and their salvation? Do we pray about the future of our coworkers? Is that a concern to us? Does it show up? in our speaking to God, in our communing with God. Jesus cares about your future. Secondly, Jesus cares about your religion. Jesus cares about your religion. I'll start in verse 10 and work through 17. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath unite his uh, untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, and as he, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now at this point, we are uh, knee-deep into man-made religion with the synagogue ruler here. There is nothing scripturally that would, that would hinder and for him to get upset about what Jesus is doing on this day. I mean, yeah, there's the Sabbath day and the rest, but, but the rules that he is, is in trying to enforce upon Christ is, is, is man-made. He is, he is saying, this is, you should not be doing this. And, and, uh, but Jesus clearly has a different agenda at this point. A different focus, a different set of rules if you will. And let's talk about caring about man-made law versus about caring versus caring about people. See, Jesus saw the woman and had compassion on her. Now think about this. During this time period, women were not thought as highly of as they are today. Uh, but he took initiative towards her. So it wasn't just, there's this man, I'm going to heal him. But this was a woman. This was a woman. And, and, and now, clearly, I, I hope that, you know, culturally, it seems like we're past much of where they were there, but it was a big deal for Jesus to reach out to her. And he has compassion on her. He took initiative. It was him who moved towards her. But you see, the synagogue leader was more concerned about his laws 
than he was about the state of the woman. I mean, you can just see his religiosity dripping here from the text. Like, it's about this law. It's not about the person. It's about the law. And at this point, not even the law of God's word, but his own law. And then Jesus, through the story of the donkey, shows himself to be Lord of their religion. So Jesus now speaks in authority over by, by giving this demonstration of the donkey or the, uh, or the ox and says, you know, no, 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 I, look, let me help you understand what you're doing or what you're, rather, what you're not doing. And Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. He says, if you will care for the donkey, why wouldn't you care for this person? Now, I think that Jesus is, there's kind of a couple things going on here. I think Jesus' main concern here in this text is to strip out this idea of law and, and law as a means of, of salvation, but then also to show the compassion that he has for this woman. But let's focus a little bit more on the law side of this passage. And I just want to ask you the question, what laws do your religion have or does your religion have? What laws have you made up in your mind that are a part of your religion and not a part of God's Word? What laws do you live by? Like would those around you say that your religion does other people good? Where do your laws in your life overtake God's desires? Where do your laws overtake God's desires? And that's clearly what's going on here in the text. His laws have overtaken God's desires. In a sense that he's obeying those laws above God's desires for his life. Maybe your law concerning a certain standard of living so you have this law, this is the way we should live, material-wise, not necessarily holy, not holiness-wise, but this kind of material life. So you work and neglect serving others, you hoard so that you can maintain that law which you've created for yourself. Maybe because that is the law in your life that now you lack compassion for those who do not live up to that law in your life. So I see those down the road who don't have what I have and we have a hard time having compassion on them. Maybe your law concerning a certain passion in your life. And then you try to force everyone else into that certain passion. Now if that's passion, it's every, anything other than Jesus. <laughs> you see the problem there. So you speak about this passion of yours more than you do the gospel. I mean, so I mean, think about this. This can, um, can look many different ways in our lives. But the point is still, it's where the law that we create becomes that which is most important to us. The synagogue ruler had created a law, and that was that which was most important to him. And Jesus says, no, this is not the case. You've created this law. I'm going to care for the woman. We, you know, here's a, I was thinking this as I was, as I was working on this this past week. But we create laws not so that we can better follow God. And I think that's where we tend to think. We tend to think, and I think the synagogue rulers do the same thing, creating these laws so that we can better follow God. But I think instead of that, we create laws so that we can better satisfy ourselves so that we can ultimately avoid God. So we create this list of moral laws over here or this list of right standards over here because if we can then check those off of our box, then ultimately we can avoid God and His demand and demands upon our lives. We create our own set of rules our own rule book, so we can live by it and then feel like we're somehow satisfying our relationship with God when in reality we're just avoiding God by satisfying that which we think is most important rather than that which God's Word declares is most important. 
So, Jesus cares about our religion. And, and I don't mean, I don't think the point here in the text is whether you're a, a Muslim or a, this form of Christianity, this form of Christianity. I, I think that's his point. I think his point is the religion that each one of us has created. And are we living by that or are we living by God's desires and his work? So, Jesus cares about our religion. Third thing Jesus cares about is your success. Your success. And I feel like I'm about to preach a Joel Osteen sermon here, but he cares about your success. Sorry, that was mean. Let's read verse 18. We'll see that these few verses don't involve a shiny Rolls Royce or a mansion this side of heaven. And the mustard seed and the leaven. So he said this. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Listen to these words. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew. It became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So the question, what is the kingdom of God like? This is very much like asking the question, what is God like? What is the kingdom of God like? What is God like? What is the character of God like? Because the kingdom of God reflects ultimately the character of God. And as we think about the kingdom of God, uh, we did a whole series on this, but remember, the kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's reign and rule and His blessing. This is the kingdom of God. So where God's kingdom goes, good things happen. And the beginning of this kingdom coming is happening here with Jesus. Because if, if I've done this in God's name, this, this casting out this demon, right? And just, just a chapter before if I've done this thing in God's name, then the kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus is saying this kingdom, this God's people in God's place under God's rule is, is upon you. God's character is coming and is transforming this place. I think Jesus' point here in the mustard seed and the leaven is that what is great and coming may appear as insignificant in the present. It's what is great and on its way might appear to you as very tiny and small in the present. So the kingdom of God appeared very small at this point. I mean, think about this. I mean, the world, at least the very, at the, the, at the very least, the Roman Empire at this point was huge to these people. It was vast. And here's this dude, Jesus, says the kingdom of God is upon you. And they're going, whoa, what? And even that, even beyond that, if we just stretched out to his followers, who at this point were probably somewhere in the low hundreds, like, this is the kingdom of God, and this is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, or when? And Jesus is saying, look, it might appear to you at this point as insignificant and small, but something great is coming. I think even as we think from now, from this point in the text to today, and we still look at what God has done in the kingdom of God and God's people throughout the past 2,000 years, it still seems insignificant and small, but it is part of something great that we, at this point, I don't think have the privilege to see or the eyes to see that yet. But we will one day. I think as God's kingdom drops out of the sky, right? And we reign with Christ forever. Then we'll see what all of this has been working toward. So, Jesus' goal for us is to look and see where the kingdom is headed, to understand that it's headed towards something huge, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that we are part of something larger than ourselves. I think this is one purpose of the church, even gathering here today, that when we come together, we realize that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. See, it's easy for us to live life thinking that, like, this is all there is. And then we come together, whether that's 10 of us or 10,000 of us, and we come to go, and we go, what? This life is so much more than me. 
I'm a part of something so much larger than myself. Coming together as a community of believers is, the point, is to point to the reality of what is to come in the future, namely the body of Christ all seated around the throne as the people of God with one king. No longer having many kings and many lords. No longer being divided by ethnicity and color. We will be one people displaying God's creativity like a beautiful masterpiece painting. Jesus is saying here, look, it may seem small, but the kingdom is something much larger than we can imagine. And we have things in our lives that point to this magnitude. We need to find them and let them remind us of that, that magnitude of that which we are part of. And I think coming together for corporate worship is a weekly reminder of that we are part of something much larger than ourselves. It's easy to get you know, narrow focused. That this life is just about me and the troubles that are going on in my life. No, it's so much more than that. So much more to it than that. You're part of something much bigger. So where are you looking for success at? Are you looking for success in work, money, housing, parenting, marriage? I mean, Jesus cares. I think Jesus cares about these success. I think we would see this in other places. But I think primarily he's caring about our success in, in the sense of our part or our role in the kingdom coming. That we're a part of this thing that is insignificant now, but it will be successful in the future. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a part of that. And Jesus caring about our success, but primarily as it relates to the kingdom. The best is still to come. The kingdom, <clears throat> rather... Excuse me, the kingdom is on its way, and that is true success. As the redemption of all things take place, right? As God redeems this whole world. That's success. And Jesus cares about that success. And he welcomes us to be a part of that. So Jesus cares about your success. Next four, number four, Jesus cares about your salvation. Jesus cares about your salvation. Let's read in verse 22. Verse 22, he says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and, and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you have come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Well, what are we saved from? What's he, when he says saved from, what's he mean? God will eventually judge all men. God will eventually judge all men for their sins. This will happen at their deaths. So you see the assumption of the Jews at this point the assumption of the Jews was that they were all going to make it to heaven except for maybe a few of the really, really bad Jews. But the assumption was that they were all, they're all the people of God, we're all going to make it to heaven. And Jesus is saying that even very few ethnic Jews are going to make it to heaven. I think that's part of his point here. Like, surprise, like, and they're astounded at this. I mean, this would have blown them out of the water. Like, What? But we're all the people of God. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 whoa. There's many of you that are going to get there, and you're going to realize that you were never a person of God. You were never one of His children. If you get here in Luke, at verse 13, verse 24, He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, now, that you right there, if you're from Kentucky, that's y'all, all right? Uh, if you're from Ohio, that's like you guys or you all. 
um, or if you're, like, again, for me, from kind of spent some time in both places, it's y'all. Uh, that's plural. Jesus is talking to everyone. And I think there's implications of that clearly for us as well. But Jesus is speaking to everyone, not just, I believe, the nation of Israel. So then the question is, who will be saved then? Well, how do we know who will be saved? It says, verse 30, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I don't think Jesus is teaching at this point that to enter the kingdom of God, you must be last. I don't think that's his point. I think Jesus' point at this, in this point of the text is that the most basic things in life will be reversed on that day. Like the things that you most expect won't take place, and the things that you least expect will take place. And I think specifically, what do you mean, as far as, if I'm painting that picture for you, is that those who you think, like surely they'll be the ones that will enter into the kingdom of God for eternity, will be the ones who are not. And those who you think most least likely will be the ones that enter into the kingdom of God for eternal rest. Jesus, he is saying that you'll be surprised at who is saved. And I think he's, he's rejecting the idea that just because you're a Jew, that you're going to be fine on the day of judgment. I think that's what he's rejecting at this point. So then, how does that apply to us? Let's bring this home. Just like the Jews thought that because of their religion, that on the day of judgment they would be saved, we have a similar, uh, similar scenario. In our culture, our church culture today, we tend to have the same thinking. So those... Those who think, if I'm just good enough, then I will make it to heaven. If I'm just good enough, I'll get there. No. I think you'll be quite surprised. Those who think, well, because I've been a part of a church my whole life, I think we'll be very surprised. Those who think, well, because I was baptized as a child, or because I joined this church as a child, and my name's written on their membership roll, because I'm a member of this or that church. You know, I have found, um, as I've gotten older, relatively speaking, in ministry, like I, I'm much less quick to just throw someone in the category uh, as saved. Just much less quick to do that. I'd rather assume them lost and not knowing and, and, and then leading them to that and then finding out, oh, they are fantastic. Then assume them to be followers of Jesus and then never speak the gospel to them. I'd much rather err on that side even at the risk of uh, insulting them than I would be on this side and then watch them go to hell when I had the opportunity to speak the gospel to them. So I think we'll be surprised. I think that's what Jesus is saying. So let's look at verse 24. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now I think the striving here, if we understand this in light of the rest of the Word of God, I don't think this is referring to earning your salvation, but instead it's a striving that accompanies your salvation. So you're not striving to earn it, but it's a striving that accompanies the work that God's doing in your heart. So Jesus is saying this isn't the case. You're going to be terribly surprised on that day at who is actually saved. Now notice two different perspectives as a part of this passage. Two different perspectives. One is the width of God's mercy. How we see God's salvation for many nations. What's he say there at the end of the passage? He talks about that many will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. Also notice God's patience in shutting that door. It's still open. But then there's the difficult side. This is the second perspective, the difficult side, that Jesus is clearly teaching that not everyone is going to be saved. So, I mean, so the idea of universalism is just, I mean, clearly Jesus is not a universalist. He doesn't think that everyone is going to heaven. There are some that will not make it through the door. Matter of fact, that door is not huge, but it's narrow. So the danger for us is thinking that we are saved when we really are not. So here's the question I think I had to ask. How do we know that we are saved? How do we know we're saved? 
I mean, the horrible fate, if we're not, I mean, think about this, verse 27, the horrible fate is that he will say, away from me, for I never knew you. I mean, do we understand the weightiness of that statement? Depart from me, for I never knew you. I mean, it seems like lots will be saved, but not all. And then in verse 25, look at verse 25, he says, it says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in your streets. So, I mean, so let's think about this. There must be, there must be more to salvation than, than, than just being simply familiar with Jesus and his teaching. There's, there's, there's got to be more. Just doing good things. And from a worldly perspective, your salvation cannot come, or if we're thinking about a worldly perspective, your salvation cannot come from worldly qualifications like I'm a good person or church membership or baptism or I, I give to, to charities and, and I love my neighbor and cut his grass once every decade. Instead, Jesus teaches that we must repent now. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to repent for all of your sins and place your trust in Jesus as the payment for those sins. So if you're a follower, you need to repent for your current sins and continual repentance. Continual repentance is a sign of salvation. How do you want to know if you're saved? Are you continually repenting for sin? That's That's a sign. See, again, back to that question. How do I know that I'm saved? And we don't have time to, to give a great treatment, but just as a quick overview, where are you placing your hope and trust? Is it your work or is it Jesus' work? Are you trying to earn favor with God or you trust that Jesus has earned favor with God? Another question, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Patience, joy, love, peace, kindness. Are those increasing in you? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. If you're not... If you still have just as few of those things today as you did three years ago, then there's probably room to question. But are you growing in love, joy, patience, kindness, peace? Now, I might confuse you a little bit, but give me a second to, to, remind, to, to clarify. But the next question I would say is, are you a member of a church? The whole practice of church membership is meant to be an aid in the assurance of your own salvation. Not, not because I'm, I'm assured of my salvation because my name is written on some stupid piece of paper. But have you ever thought about though how membership in a body fits into the life of a believer? I mean, you are meant to humble yourself and put on the yoke with other believers. We're meant to live that way. We're meant to have a, like, uh, you've got this yoke, I've got the, you know, we're carrying this together. Now, ultimately, obviously, we're supposed to cast all of our anxiousness and cares upon God, but we carry these things together as a body. And the church is meant to help you understand if the words you use about the gospel are true. So when you speak about the gospel in your life, the church is meant to help you go, is that true of you? Like, do you really mean those words? Does that, does, is, that, is that just speak that's coming out, or is that truly what you believe? And the church is there to help you think through that. The church is there to help you understand your own life and whether or not it is the life of repentance and faith. Like the church is there to help you go, man, you're not living a life of repentance and faith. Or yes, you are, and let me affirm that in you, and I see that, and let me encourage this. The church is there to help you assess whether or not you have an accurate assessment of yourself. The church is there to help you know whether or not you are deceiving yourself. I mean, Jesus set up the local church to help us work through these things. That the church is there to help affirm the work of God in our lives or to affirm the lack of work of the work of God in our lives. It's the whole point of church discipline. 
We can, so that the body can say, we don't see God working now repentance and faith in your life. Instead, we see you as a lost person. Or here, let me call you to repentance. The church membership is more than just getting to vote. Of course, if you're part of Renovation Church, we don't do a whole lot of voting. So there's no confusion here. <laughs> so... What is it about? I mean, Baptists tend to mess that one up really bad. They kind of champion the idea of church membership. Um, and uh, it's been just whittled down to a being name on a roll and getting to vote on something. So that we can help each other work out our salvation. That's what the church is for. To affirm it or to say, no, I, I don't see that, man. You need to work on this. You need to work on that. This is evidence of the Holy Spirit. So, let me encourage you, if you're not a member of a local church, to join. Um, and uh, so, Jesus cares about your salvation. Next thing Jesus cares about, this is the last one. Jesus cares about your take on Him. Your understanding of Him. Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow on the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your, ho your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus here is on his way to Jerusalem. And basically saying, Herod, you can have your way once my course is finished. He knows this is coming. Notice Jesus calls Herod a fox, meaning sly, underhanded, dangerous. This is what he calls Herod. And Jesus presents himself, notice, he presents himself in the same context as a hen. Now, who typically wins between the fox and the chicken? Right? The fox usually wins. But who do we know wins in this case? Again, it's just Jesus painting this totally different picture. It's not what you expect. Again, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. This is not what you'd expect. Those who are saved, those who are saved are probably not what you expect. He's kind of turning it upside down. He says, he presents himself as a hen gathering chicks underneath his wing. And notice Jesus continues to express compassion, though, on those who reject him. Notice that in the text. Those he knows going to reject him. He says, oh, Jerusalem, verse 34. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Hmm. But just as for the Jews, it is important what we do with Jesus. And that's what he's saying. Right? This is concern here is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, the Israelites, what have you done? You've killed the prophets, but what I would have done had you not rejected me. So just as Jesus cares with how the Jews received him and their take on him. Jesus cares about whether or not we receive or reject him. And we come back to the same question. What are we receiving or rejecting? We're receiving or rejecting who is Jesus. And we've been talking about that question all throughout Luke, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the only hope for your sin. So the question is, what are you doing with Jesus today? Is he just some religious practice? Or is he someone that you follow with your heart? Is he someone that you submit your life to? Or is he someone that you call on when you need something? Do you believe he's just a cool religious figure? Or do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe he did a cool thing for a few people on the cross? Or do you believe that he died for the sins of the world? And then what are you doing with that? Is that something you live in light of or something that you put in a box and take it out when it's nice and convenient for you? What 
what are you doing with Jesus? If you're not a follower of Christ, you're still like checking out this Christianity thing, let me encourage you to press into Christ, to pursue Him, to ask Him to reveal Himself to you, to show Himself. I would encourage you to turn your life over to Him. If you're a follower of Christ, if you consider yourself a believer, continue to turn your life over to Him every day. It's not just something you got to do. It's kind of like this with your wife. I try this with my wife often. I say, well, I, I told you I loved you the day we got married, and uh, do I have to keep saying it? Well, yes, you have to keep saying it, right? Like, so as a believer, like you don't just need the gospel for the day that you were saved. You need it as you are being saved, as you are being made into the likeness of Him who died for you. Trust Him daily. So, what does Jesus care about? He cares about your future, although He probably defines that a little differently than we do. Your religion, your success, your salvation, your take on Him. Now here, if Jesus cares about these things, and we're followers of Him, then we will care about these things too, both as they relate to us and as they relate to those around us. We will care about the same things concerning not just ourselves, but others as well. We're talking about reproduction. We will care about reproducing this truth into other people. Now, some of you know who C.S. Lewis is. Um, he's a f- phenomenal writer, brilliant man. And I want to read to you from a quote from the book, his book called Weight of Glory. And this quote is talking about how we view the people around us and how this affects the truth that we, that we speak to them and that we reproduce into them. He says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the all and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play all politics there are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal nations cultures arts civilizations these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with work with marry snub and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And if we view each other, I think we often view each other as mortals, as, yes, and, and, and we're talking soul, spirit here, mortal, as in once we die, it's all done. But the fact is, our soul and our spirit will live on forever. And if we understand that we are helping each other towards one thing or the other, we're either helping each other towards what Jesus cares about, or we're helping each other towards what we care about or what they care about. And if we viewed each other in every interaction, that this is someone who, whose soul, whose spirit will live on forever. And I'm helping them to either become what God has created them to be or to live in torment and destruction for the rest of their life. How would we treat people, both those who we think are lost and both those who we think are saved? How would we interact with them? interact with them. So, I want us to pray. Uh, we'll worship this morning for in, in response to the text. Um, so let me pray for us, and the band will come forward. Um, I want you to consider these things. Do Consider that question. Do you care about what God cares about? Are you leading others around you to care about what God cares about? Or are you leading them to care about what they want to care about or what you care about? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness in this text. I know it's not always fun to, uh, to study your word because sometimes we're confronted 
with the sin in our lives. Sometimes we're confronted with the struggles that we have and things that we just simply need to fix but are not necessarily sinful. But, but sometimes we're confronted with things that we are doing that bring shame to your name. And Father, I pray that in these next few moments that we would reflect upon our lives and not assume that our life is just all glory and bliss and bringing glory to your name, but Father, that we would ask you to honestly, to, to open up our hearts so that we could honestly see, are we caring about that which you care about? Is it reflected in our prayers? How might this Friday's prayers be different than last Friday's prayers? How might they reflect what you care about compared to what we care about? How might our interactions with those people around us be reflective of what you care about versus what we care about? Father, ultimately I pray that through the work of the gospel in our lives and the payment that was made, that what we care about can become synonymous with what you care about. That there no longer is this division. But instead, when I think about what I care about, it is reflective of what you care about, Father. So Father, I just pray that you would, in these moments, begin to align our hearts and our desires and what we care about more in sync with what you care about, what you desire. Father, let our hearts be open. Let us respond to you in truth. Um, Father, as we sing upon, when Christ a solid rock I stand, Father, we would understand that this change that we want to bring be brought about is made possible by the rock that we stand upon. Not upon our own doing, but upon our repentance. Father, as we understand it's you who began a good work that will see it to completion. So, Father, as we sing, Father, I pray that we would sing reflecting, but also sing knowing this truth of Jesus on the cross. And it's on him that we stand. And, Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us as we sing? Thank <laughs> you.